Hey, good morning. We're going to, uh, to jump into God's Word this morning. And as always, it's always um, exciting to, uh, to preach. It's a privilege, but at the same time, um, it is a huge weight and responsibility um, that, uh, that I feel uh, that I carry. So as we go to God's Word, um, I know Andy already prayed, but I'm going to pray again that, uh, that God would use this message to encourage you to exhort you, to challenge you, um, to convict you, and that God's Spirit would be in this place this morning giving us understanding and giving us courage to be the people that God has called us to be. And so would you pray with me real quick? Heavenly Father, again, as we come before your word, we come before you humbly, um, God, with great need, knowing that uh, that you work in us to will and to work for your good pleasure. So God, give us eyes to see and receptive hearts to uh, receive your word this morning, to be corrected and convicted and encouraged, that we would uh, leave this place uh, more equipped to represent you in this world that uh, we live in. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So this morning, we're looking at Titus 2, um, verses 11 through 15. And this is a continuation of the series that Andy has been doing uh, in the book of Titus. This morning, we're specifically going to be looking at God's grace. The grace of God is not only saving grace for the Christian, but it is also visible grace in the Christian's life. This grace of God is our assurance of salvation as much as it is our testimony to the world that we live in. The two are not exclusive from each other. They are two truths, two realities that exist and are inseparable. Christians should not only embrace the saving grace of God, but should cherish the teaching grace of God, remembering that God has called us to live lives worthy of the gospel as his ambassadors. Church, this is something that we should take seriously. Paul writes in verse 11 that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. This is the gospel, right? Grace comes to you. This is not just something that we seek out and find. This is not something that we we work to earn. This is something that comes to us and reveals itself to us. The grace of God has appeared. The Greek word here for this is uh, epiphaneo, and it means to shine out. It's used in the same sense as the sun when it's rising in it, and it illuminates the entire land that it shines upon saying the grace of God has appeared to us in this way. A few weeks ago, Brock and I, uh, along with Micah and Dylan, went uh, snow camping. We went up to Loon Lake, and uh, it was a lot of fun, but it was very cold. And we decided one morning, you know what would be really awesome? It wasn't my idea. I think it was Micah's and maybe Brock's. It would be really awesome if we got up really early before the sun came out and it was still really cold and hike up this mountain to watch the sunrise. And uh, so we, we, we didn't have reception. We, we didn't know what time the sun was going to rise, so we just guessed, okay, it's going to be like, I don't know, like 6.15, right? 
That's the time the sun rises in the mountains, like we know. So we get up, we, we put on all of our layers, we put on our snowshoes and, and all of our gear, and we go and decide to hike up this mountainside to see the sunrise. And we thought, okay, we'll hike up, and it'll be like maybe five, ten minutes, and we'll see the sunrise, and then we'll get back to our camp, and we'll start a fire, and it'll be awesome. Well, we hike up, and we wait for ten minutes, and the sun doesn't rise. We're like, all right, ten minutes, that's okay. Like, I can't feel my fingers, but I can feel my toes. We'll wait another ten minutes. Another ten minutes goes by. It's still dark. I mean, we're waiting in expectation, like, it, when is this sun going to rise? Another 15 minutes. It had, we had sat in the snow on this mountaintop in the cold for 45 minutes waiting for the sun to rise. We had waited in such expectation that when the sun finally hit, when it broke over the peak of this mountaintop, it was amazing. You could see the, the whole lake was frozen over and you could just see the sun crossing over, illuminating this frozen lake, and we just sat there and we're like, whoa, this is amazing. Let's go eat breakfast. Let's go get some coffee. <laughs> this is what Paul's talking about when he says that grace has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. This grace of God has, has shined out like the sun breaking the, the mountaintop. It's not something that we go out and get. This salvation is not something that we seek out and find. It comes to us, and it reveals itself to us, and we either embrace it or we reject it. I remember having a conversation with a good friend of mine about uh, the cosmic mountain to God, and we were having this conversation. He's like, yeah, I kind of look at you know, religion and God and salvation as this this mountaintop. And I'd heard this analogy, and, and, and I was like, let's talk about it. And he's like, you know, I kind of see it as like this, this, this huge mountain. And there are all these sides to it and all these different paths, right? And as long as you, you want God and you have good intentions and you're pursuing God, no matter what path you take, eventually you're going to get to the top of the mountain and you're going to find God. So whether you're a Christian or a Mormon or a Buddhist or atheist or whatever it is, as long as you live life with good intentions— you're eventually going to find God. I love that analogy. It makes me feel good. It's like, oh, that would be great. The only problem with that is that God did not stay at the top of the mountain. He came down, right? He came down, and John says that the word became flesh and it dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And then Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. So as much as I love the idea that all these roads and all these different routes and all these different ways can, can lead to God eventually, Jesus says, no, 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 no. I am the salvation. I am the gospel. I am the grace. No one goes to the Father unless they come through me. It's not good news, this salvation that's being revealed to all people, if it's an exclusive salvation. When Paul writes that he is bringing salvation to, to all people, he is opening up 
the, the minds of, of Jews who thought that salvation was exclusively for them. Now, Jesus was very exclusive when he said, I am the only way, right? Like, there's no other way. But he was inclusive to all people. He was saying, I'm going to be the only way for all humanity, for all people. This is good news. If it's any other message, it's not good news. Bringing salvation to all men. There's one gospel of grace for all men. He doesn't have a gospel of grace for some and a gospel of works and self-justification for others. You are either with God, you have either been opposed to God and you believe and you are now with him, or you reject him and you are opposed to him. But there are not multiple ways. There is one way, one good news for all of humanity. Any alternative fails to be good news. But the grace of God is not only saving grace, right? Andy would say that God loves you enough to save you where you're at, but he loves you too much to leave you there, right? So not only is God's grace saving grace, we see here that God's grace is also teaching grace. Grace teaches you, verse 12 and 13, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled and upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the, appearance, the appearing of the glory of God and our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Training us. This Greek word has in mind what a parent would do with their child. And it encompasses the entire training process of raising up a child, right? It's teaching them the right ways. It's encouraging them. It's, it's disciplining them and correcting them. Yesterday, I was at my brother's house, and we were, we were staining and painting my brother's fence. And uh, my dad was there. And, uh, and it was just so cool to just sit and, and stain a fence with my dad and just remember all of the lessons that I had learned as a child. And at some point, we were talking about discipline, and my dad's like, oh, I never spanked you. And my brother and I just, like, burst into laughter. Like, are you kidding me? He's like, my dad was really hard. He used to say, like, don't make me come in there. And then we just stopped. I never said that to you. And I was like, Dad, where have you been? You totally did that to us. But it was training. You not only taught me the things that I should do, you also corrected me in the things that I should not do. So when Paul talks about this grace of God being training, it has in its mind this, this whole rounded training Calvin says he means that God's grace should instruct us in, or to order our lives aright. Some are quick to turn the preaching of God's mercy into an excuse for licentiousness, while carelessness keeps others from thinking about the renewal of their life. But the revelation of God's grace necessarily brings with it exhortations to a godly life. See, grace saves us, but it also teaches us. Grace has followers. Grace has disciples. Are you a disciple of this grace? Spurgeon would ask, did you ever come and submit yourself to this grace that teaches us? 
If you don't know, if you have ever submitted to the teaching grace of Jesus, he continues on with three markers, three things to to let us know if we are disciples of this grace. It teaches us three things. It teaches us what to deny. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Grace puts ungodliness and worldly lusts in our past. Now grace teaches us to renounce those things, not only to avoid them. He says to renounce ungodliness, to deny. This isn't just the, 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 the things that we, we know are wrong, like murder. This is the, the entire systems of the world that are opposed to God. This is the devil in his schemes, as well as our lust in our flesh, in our own sinful habits. This is not a popular teaching in the church. We're usually taught that God loves us no matter what, and there's nothing that we could do to separate us from the love of God. And that is true when we are in Christ, when he is sanctifying us and making us more like him. But if we believe that God has saved us and then we don't obey him, we only prove that we don't actually trust in the saving grace of God. Sin is something that separates us from God. Sin is something that separates us from God. I think of uh, all, the, all the times um, I hear people talking about their marriages or their families or uh, their work life, their, their private life. And how often we hear this, this, I've just gone too far. I've just... I've crossed one too many lines. I've broken too many promises. I've, I've broken too many vows. I'm too far down the hole. I'm too far separated from God. And what a good thing to be aware of that separation. The only thing is sometimes our sin causes us or leads us to despair when we, when we think that we are so far gone that God is incapable of saving us. We feel like we are so far gone. The shame and the weight and the guilt is so heavy that we could, we could never face up to our family members. We could never look our children in the eyes. We could never look at our husbands or wives the same. We would never be able to earn the trust back from that person. And those things might be true, but it would be better for us to be trained by God's grace, to to feel the weight of that sin and shame and be relieved of it in this life, no matter the earthly consequence, than to feel that weight for all of eternity separated from God. Grace teaches us to renounce our sin, not just to avoid it, but to call it sin and to flee from it and to fight it. Antinomianism is this idea that we are saved by God's grace, and that once we are saved, there's nothing that can separate us. And we, they use it as this license to keep on sinning. It's another form of legalism. They believe that once you are saved, 
you are basically, grace is, gives you provisions to go on sinning and, and continue in the sinning life. But we don't see that here. We don't see that grace saves us and it makes provisions for sin. It says that grace saves us and then it trains us. It teaches us. It hones us. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll what? You'll obey my commandments. Spurgeon said the most difficult part of training young men, and I would add young women too, it's not exclusive, uh, is not to put the right thing in them, but to get the wrong thing out of them. Spurgeon is saying, and what I would agree with, that we spend a lot of time in the church teaching healthy diet, teaching the things that we need to, to start doing while we sometimes ignore that there is sin that is dragging us down, separating us from God. And sometimes as a church, we need to go in and we need to clean out the junk. We need to get rid of the sin. But it just doesn't just teach us what to deny Grace teaches us how to live in obedience. In verse 12, the second half, it says, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It's not just glorification in eternity. Grace hones us and refines us. It's called sanctification, this process of being made more and more like Christ. It says it teaches us how to live in this present age now, not just in eternity, but now in this life, today, the day that we have now. It says that we must live soberly or self-controlled regarding our relationships, our relation with ourselves. Two, that we must live righteously regarding the people around us. And three, we must live godly or to have a reverence for God and to take him and his word and his commands seriously. You see, there are all sorts of reasons why we should renounce ungodliness. There are all sorts of reasons why we should live soberly and upright and self-controlled lives. There are a lot of motivating factors to do this. One, you probably won't ruin your marriage if you don't cheat on your husband or wife. You can, but that's a good way to start not doing that, right? If you don't steal from your company, you'll probably keep your job, right? If you treat your neighbors well and pick up after your dog when you go on walks, they'll probably smile and wave at you. There's a lot of perks in denying our ungodliness and, and worldly lusts and living upright and just lives. But the motivation here is godliness. That we do these things because we take our God seriously. We do these things out of love and obedience to God who is not only our Savior, but is our Lord, our King. It teaches us to live in obedience, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Now you see 
Calvin says that the fear of the legalist, that preaching grace only produces Christians indifference, indifferent to obedience, is unfounded. It's not true. Grace teaches us to obey God. It teaches us obedience. And then three, it teaches us to look forward to the return of God. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus teaches us, his grace teaches us to expect and prepare for him to come back. Sometimes we focus too much on what we shouldn't do and what we should do, and we kind of miss the, the, the part of waiting and longing for Jesus to return. How much of Jesus' return, his imminent promised return, takes um, space in our mind? How much time do we spend thinking about, waiting for, longing for the second coming of Jesus? It says that he teaches us to wait and look forward to his return. The hope is not in heaven. The hope is not in, in our glorification, but it is in Jesus himself, face to face, closer than ever. Waiting for indicates that Christians should live in active expectation of the return of Jesus. I think of uh, this this, uh, this image, or I have in my mind, I don't know if you guys like watching night movies, but uh, I went on this huge kick when, with uh, Netflix where I would basically just find anything that had to do with castles or kings or kingdoms and like the sword fighting. I loved it. It was awesome, right? But I have in my mind this return of Jesus, right? Like a king who has established his kingdom, and he's left his soldiers there to defend the city, and he goes away on a journey. But all the enemy, uh, enemies surrounding are attacking them, right? And, we're, and we're, they're trying to fight off, and they're trying to, they're under siege, and they're trying to knock those, those ladders down and, like, pour that oil stuff on them and light them on fire and do all these things, like shooting arrows and stuff, all the cool things, right? But it just keeps pressing in. It just keeps creeping in, and we see people around us getting lost. We see them breaking down and we get discouraged. But then we see from a distance the king coming back. We see him coming. And what happens when the king returns? The enemy flees. The enemy flees while the king's people rejoice because it's finally here. He's finally here. If you're one of God's people, this is your blessed hope. If you're not one of God's people, this is not hopeful. This is actually fearful. We rejoice when the king comes back because we are one of his. We have been purchased. We are his people. Jesus came this first time, humble, Right, an innocent child. He will return as a mighty king. He came the first time to save the soul of man. He will come a second time to resurrect our bodies. He came a first time to save the individual. 
He will come a second time and save society, all of his creation. He came a first time to a crucifixion. He will come a second time to a coronation. He came a first time to a tree. He will come a second time to a throne. He came a first time and was judged by men. He will come a second time and judge all men. He came a first, the first time and he stood before Pilate. When he comes again, Pilate will stand before him. We have this blessed hope if we are his people and we long for the return of our king in might and in power and in justice. And then grace not only trains you, but it sets you up for God's purpose. Grace sets you up for God's purpose. Verse 14, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Every word in this description of Jesus, Jesus' work is important for us. Jesus gave, which means it was voluntary. He wasn't forced. There is this new idea that is well, I don't know how new it is, but I hear way more now than I did 10 years ago that Jesus wasn't actually the atoning sacrifice sent to save men from death. He was murdered. He came to teach about the kingdom of heaven and people didn't like him, so they gathered him up and bound him and they, they crucified him. There's this idea that Jesus did not come to die but he thought, well, if you guys are just going to kill me, I guess I'll just die. But it says that he came to redeem us. Jesus gave himself, which means it was voluntary. He came that we might be saved. It says that he gave himself, which means that Jesus gave the most costly thing that he could give. His perfect body. His perfect body life. He didn't come and say, I'm here to teach about the kingdom of heaven. And look, I brought another sacrifice. He gave himself. He gave all of himself. And then finally, he gave himself for us, which means that this sacrifice, this, this offering, this giving of his life was a substitute for sinful man. It was a substitute for us. We call it substitutionary atonement, which means that there was a price that was owed for our sin, and Jesus came and paid that price with his blood. What kind of heavenly father would give himself, his son, up for no reason? Would just let his son be murdered? No, he was very purposeful. Jesus came knowing that he was going to come to the cross and die, and he did it for us that we might be saved, that we might be restored back to him. We have a hard time with this, especially in our culture, because the world doesn't understand its current state of sin. When you tell someone that Jesus died for their sin, they're like, How, who are you to tell me that I have sin?" 
How judgmental and arrogant of you to assume that I have made some sort of mistake in my life. I had a student one year on SMI have the hardest time sharing her faith because she'd never asked Jesus to die for her. And she told me, she was, she was, we're on SMI, and she's like, I just, I have a hard time going and telling people that they need Jesus because I never asked them to do that. I know it was terrible, but I never asked for that. She didn't understand that she had a sin problem. And even though she didn't ask for it, Jesus knew that she needed it and did it for her. The world has a hard time with this because we have to get around this this sin issue, right? We have a hard time accepting the fact that we are not perfect, that we are evil at our core and need a savior, need a sacrifice. But it says that he is saving us, redeeming us from lawlessness and purifying for himself his own people, a people of his own possession. This phrase means reserved for, and it has in its mind the the the. The, the, the findings or the, I wanted to say loot, but I have it in my notes. What's it called? When you go into battle, the spoils, the spoils, the spoils of battle. I was thinking pirates. I also like pirate movies. Um, it's, it's reserved for the king, right? All the spoils of battle, the, the gold and, and um, the, the, the cattle and, and all the stuff, right? There's this special Reserved for the king. Reserved for the king's possession, for the king's purposes. And Paul is saying, we are that possession. We also don't like being told that we are a possession. We also have a hard time with that. Like, Jesus saved me. He doesn't own me. No, he does. He does own us. And it's not a bad thing. It's actually a really good thing because if we were saved from our sin only to be set free to carry out our own wills, what would we do? We would leap right back in to the slavery of sin. We kind of have it in our mind like, like we were born and then someone came and stole us from our family and, and, and made us do all these terrible things. No, this was the will of man. And God came to change that will, to renew our minds, to renew our hearts, to give us a new purpose and a new will. So we are saved to be God's possession, who are zealous for good works, who are zealous not to just carry out the things that um, entertain them or please them or serve them, but to carry out the things that God has willed for the lives of believers. Again, Paul writes in Philippians that God works in you not only to desire, not only to will, but to work for what? Not your pleasure, not my pleasure, not the world's pleasure, but God's pleasure because he has saved you. I used to think when I was 20 that that wasn't that long ago. But a lot has changed. I'll tell you what. I used to think when I was 20 that if God wanted me to do something, he would change my desires. Sounds like a 20-year-old, huh? 
I remember uh, having a conversation with Stu Elliott, and uh, he was one of my accountability group leaders in high school, and then kind of just had this good friendship going out. And we were talking about, we would talk about uh, at these hangouts about lust and, and, and desires and the flesh and all of this stuff. And I remember thinking, well, if God just didn't want me to be attracted to other women, or if God didn't want me to struggle with lust, or if he didn't want me to have any of these things, he would just be a good God and take it away. If he wanted it so bad, he would just take it away. Sometimes I still think that. Like, God, won't you just take this away? I practice one spiritual discipline. And at the end of the month, I start going, look how good I am. Ah, God, will you make me humble, not just self-controlled? But it's true that God works in us, not only to have these new desires, but to work for what he has willed for us, to work for his good pleasure, zealous for good works. As you know, Titus was a teacher of teachers, Spurgeon writes. He had to set in order the things that were wanting and to show other preachers how they were to preach. You see how much of the, church, uh, the epistle is taking up, taken up with the affairs of ordinary life, matters of holy practice. So let our preaching be and let the Christian people learn to receive joyfully such instructions. This is something that we should be joyfully receptive of. And then finally, excuse me, finally, grace makes you its messenger. 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. He's not just talking about verse 11 through 15. He's talking about the entire message, the entire letter to Titus, right? Where he spends time talking about those who are ungodly and, and, and false teachers and all this stuff. And then he moves over and starts talking about and the leaders of the church and how they should operate. And then he says, go and declare all of these things. Exhort the believers. Exhort your brothers. Rebuke the false teachers and do it with all authority. Authority that you haven't created, but authority that God has given you as his messenger. And he says, let no one disregard you. Titus and every one of God's messengers of grace are directed to speak, exhort, and rebuke, and to do it with authority. God's messengers are to remember that they were messengers of the king, holding the word, the word that brings life and turn back and turns back hell. If Titus spoke with all of authority, he also had to back it up with his life. Son of a church is absolutely called to go and share the good news, but this good news should be evident and visible in the lives of Christians, in the lives of God's people. It should be backed up in our personal and public lives. Titus had to live so that um, no one would despise him or his message. This was as much of an exhortation to Titus um, as it was to the Cretans and to SRC today. I'm going to close. I'm going to invite the band to come up and we're going to take communion. 
in just a second. But Jesus, as Christians, as his possessions, as his people, he has entrusted us as his ambassadors. If you are here this morning and you believe in Jesus, you believe in in the gospel, the grace of God, that you were once lost and now you were found. If you were once dead in your sin, but you have been brought to life in grace, then this grace will continue to teach you. It will continue to mold you and shape you and hone you. And if you don't believe this, if you don't know this grace, if this grace isn't changing you, if it has not saved you, this morning I want to invite you to take this message seriously. To know and trust that we are sinful, that we need a Savior. And the good news is that Savior has come. That grace is not a concept or an idea, but grace is a person. His name is Jesus. And he came not only to save us, but to teach us and to make us in this life look more like him, relying on him and embracing this teaching and corrective grace in our lives. First Peter 2 verse 12 says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they don't like you. They don't like your message. They don't like what you're doing. When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds, the good works, and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this morning that we've had to to be in your word, to be encouraged. God, some of us have been sitting in the, the rut of Christianity. I've been a Christian for 45 years, but still seem to be in that same place. God, would you encourage them and challenge them to continue growing, to allow grace not only to be a savior, but to be a teacher as well. God, there there are also people here who are like lamb without a shepherd, like sheep without a shepherd, like people without a king. God, would you open their eyes to see you, to see your goodness, to understand that you have revealed yourself out of compassion and loving kindness. Would they trust in that grace? Would they, right now, be one of your people? God, as we go, would you give us courage, uh, remembering your sacrifice, remembering what you did. May that be uh, emboldening to us. We pray these things uh, for your glory. In your name, amen.